Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. All right. Hey, um, while I get set up, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and raise your hand. If you, if you have uh, just a phone, uh, we're, we're doing a little bit of a culture shift here uh, in our church. So um, if you only have a phone, we, we want you to have a real Bible. So raise your hand, and we got people in the back that are going to be handing out Bibles. We got new Bibles this week, these very sleek black, very plain clean Scandinavian maybe even, um, Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, this is yours to keep. Please take it home. Keep your hands up nice, nice and high. If you don't have a Bible, there, there's, uh, eventually we're going to get one to you. Um, we're ma- like, like I said earlier, you know, we're making this kind of culture shift in the church. If you were here last week, you heard about it, but I'm going to reiterate myself for a couple of weeks here. Um, the, the church is a counterforming community. And what that means is that there are specific things that we will do and promote here uh, that are counter to everything that the culture around you is promoting and encouraging in your life. Um, you know, you think about just what you do when you come to a church. We're going to receive communion. and I mean, we're literally going to eat bread and drink wine and, and believe that that is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. So uh, that's pretty counter to what uh, culture is, is wanting you to do. Uh, we're going to pray in dependence. We're going to take times to, to, to pray. We, we sang uh, to God. That's pretty counter to what the culture uh, would encourage you to do around you. And um, this is another counter practice. Uh, having a real physical Bible, um, uh, bring a Bible to church. Um, I, I want to encourage you: don't use your phone when you're in church. Try to put it, you know, somewhere far far away from you. Uh, don't use the Bible app when you're in church. Use a real physical Bible. And you're like, why? Why do I need to do that? Because I want you to get spatially familiar with God's Word. I want you to, to develop, if you don't have a relationship with God's word uh, on a daily basis in your own time, I want you to begin to develop one here. I want you to learn where the, where the, where the books of the Bible are and learn how to read the whole narrative of the Bible. So um, we're, we're consecrating this time to God. We're, we're not uh, just coming here, like even what Jake said, we're not coming here for just purely social reasons. We're not coming here to just kind of uh, get inspired. This isn't just about inspiration. We're consecrating the two hours that we have on a Sunday morning to God. And I really think that we can honor him in this space. So does everybody have a physical Bible now? You guys are all awesome. That's so great. Um, also, parents, uh, if, you're, if your kids are getting squirrely at all, we have a brand new kind of parent section out by the um, kind of art gallery lobby over there. Um, it's a safe spot for you to take your kids if your kids aren't ready for children's church or something like that. We have a spot out there. Um, and, and we're really trying to consecrate this space to minister to God. Does that make sense? Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, awesome. Uh, Let's stand for the reading of Scripture. Luke chapter 9 is where we are at this morning. Luke 9, and we're going to begin in verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here today, or some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. He was praying, and, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was to bring about, uh, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and grab your seats. This entire section of scripture that we just read is really about one question. And I, I believe that this is the most consequential question that you can answer in your life. I, I would actually argue that this is the one question that you must answer in this life. And the question is, who is Jesus? Who do you think he is? I have three movements, if you will, today, and each of these correspond to the three sections of Scripture before us. So we're going to make our way through these three movements. Movement number one is this. Who do you say I am? Look back down at your Bibles, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private... Uh, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, you know, some people think that you're John the Baptist, others say that you're Elijah, still others, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Verse 20, but what about you? Who do you say I am? You have to remember that this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. And right after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds have attempted to make Jesus king. 
If you remember, this is, the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't just a miracle. It was a prophetic critique on Rome. Rome gives you bread, but Jesus can multiply bread. Jesus is greater than Caesar, right? And so the crowd comes together and they go, we need you to be our king. And he escapes from them. It's not, it, that's not what he's doing. And so after this moment, he has this question, who am I? Who do you think I am? Now, there's this theme all throughout Luke that the most important thing about you isn't what you think or what you, who you are internally, but how you perceive the world around you. Remember the passage, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, if you perceive God correctly, if you perceive the world around you correctly, your whole body will be full of light. So who do you perceive that I am? He's, he's repeating this theme. That is the question. And do you see how personal it is? He even contrasts their response with the response of the crowds. You know, the crowds say this, but what about you? What do you say? Uh, one of the church fathers, Cyril of Alexandria, he, he said this, oh, how full of meaning is that word you, separating you from all others. It doesn't matter what the crowd thinks. You won't be judged on agreeing or disagreeing with people and know as much as our culture wants to scare you by telling you history will judge you. No, history does not judge you. God will judge you. So your friends might sneer. The crowd might ostracize you in this life. But at the end of your life, every person will stand before God and there's one question you must answer above all others. Did he know you? Did you know him? As I was thinking about this this week, I got this image. You know, if you were to visualize all of human history as a ribbon stretched across time, Jesus would stand in the middle as an obelisk, dividing human history, unavoidable. And he would divide human history into two different camps. Next slide. Either he is beautiful, more beautiful than any other, truly the way, the truth, and the life, or he's ugly repulsive even. He's an eyesore. Either he stands as a fortress to run to in the midst of a chaotic world, or he is an affront to all that humans can build to human independence. Now, why would that be? Well, watch where the conversation goes. Look back down at your Bibles. Let's go to verse 19 again. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Everybody say that with me. God's Messiah. Now, in Greek, it's Christon Theou. Can you say that? Christon Theou. God's Christ, or the Messiah of God, is how it's translated in other translations. Now, Messiah or Christ, it, it simply means anointed. In fact, Messiah and Christ were words that were used for kings in the Old Testament at different times. It simply means anointed, but what does that mean? Well, the word anointed has Eden imagery, envisioning someone who is anointed with oil, dripping. Imagine somebody who's had oil poured on their head and it begins to drip down their face and onto their clothes, dripping with blessing, dripping with abundance, with consecration. It's, it's somebody who's Messiah or somebody who's Christ, somebody who's anointed is someone who's dripping with Eden. You look at them and you're like, there's Eden all over their life. 
Now, we don't have time uh, for it this morning, and I've taught on this uh, a number of different times, but from Genesis through the history of Israel, through the Psalms, through the prophets, there is this son of man who is spoken about. This, this link between the Son of Man and the Mishayak, or the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, all throughout the, the Scriptures. And there's one stop that I want to make before we get to the next part of our passage. It's Daniel's vision. Daniel's a prophet. He has this vision of the Son of Man uh, as the, the Anointed One, dripping with Eden, coming, and doing what humans couldn't do. So here's how he envisions it. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. Everybody say, Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." Now, it's important that we, that we understand Daniel chapter 7 because I've watched things on like the History Channel or even like uh, you'll you know, go through the grocery uh, you know, checkout line and there'll be a magazine like, Jesus never claimed to be God. He claimed to be, in fact, he just claimed to be a son of man. And you're like, you idiots. Have you never read Daniel chapter 7? The son of man is the one. Jesus is making an authority claim. Jesus is making an authority claim. I'm the one that Daniel was prophesying about. I'm the Messiah figure who is destined to do what humans have not been able to do. By trusting God, by reversing the choice of Eden, he rules with God. He gets authority to crush that lying serpent and to get humanity out from under his influence. It's Jesus. And either, here's the kind of the, the, the obelisk of Jesus standing in the middle of human history. He's the dividing line. Either he's the one that you need or... He is the eyesore, always calling, you need me, while you attempt to build a life on your own. Because watch, in this next movement, this next section of scripture, there is a cost and a reward depending on how you answer who he is. Look down at your Bibles, verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, and here's, now that you're Daniel 7 informed, uh, and he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said this, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Here's what I want to say. Within his identity, there's an identity statement. Who am I? You're God's Messiah. You're, the, the, you're, you're dripping with Eden. You're the son of man. You're who Daniel was talking about. Within his identity is the answer to your identity. Did you see it? See, either you will be a disciple. And, if, and actually, the people, who, who is, who's a disciple? It's the person who answers. You're, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the one I need. So either you will be a disciple, and his journey will be your journey, taking up your cross daily, following him, or you're not a disciple. Either you will need him, and you will look at, at him dividing all of human history and you'll say, I need him. 
He's my fortress. Or you'll be ashamed of him. And if you don't need him, and if you're ashamed of the eyesore that he is, then he will be ashamed of you. We need to read that. This is in the New Testament. He'll be ashamed of you. There really are two answers to the question of who he is. And and more than lip service, the answer is given by every single person every day in the way that they live. Either you lean on him and you treasure the life preserver that he is or you're ashamed of him. Your message to your friends is always, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's not what you think. Look, maybe it is what you think. And maybe that's what's best for you. We're so afraid as Christians today to just tell the truth. To just say, this is what God's word says, period. We, we, we're always thinking that we know better of how to convince the people around us that it's, I am a follower of Jesus, but it's not what you think. No, it probably is what you think, and you need to repent of your sin so that you can really live. Here's where I want to go this morning. What does it mean to save your life? What does it mean to save your life? Look down at your Bibles, verse 24. He says this, forever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. You know, it's a, it's a riddle of sorts. And it means that if you live as though you don't need saving, if you think you're enough or that you can save yourself, you will lose your life. Now, maybe most of us in this room, the, the hubris that, we, that most of us carry, uh, we wouldn't articulate it quite like that. So let me put it this way. To save your life is to live to justify your existence. What does it mean to try to save your life? It's to live to justify your existence. And here's what I mean. Every single one of us in this room, every person ever born, needs a reason. They need a justification for their life. For some, they have children. And it's like instant purpose. I live for these kids. That's a good thing, right? The justification of my existence, the reason for my life is that I take care of these kids and I'm going to raise them to be good citizens and to follow God's ways and all of that. For others, it's money. It's the accumulation of power. I'm justifying my existence by showing you that, I, that I'm weighty enough to have this kind of wealth and this kind of money in my life. For some, it's building something, building a business or, or building a church. It's like, I, I even, this was like the temptation for me, so I guess a moment of vulnerability. I remember even thinking before we planted the church, like if I could just build something that nobody could take, that nobody could take from me, I could say, at least I did that with my life. At least I built that. And I think that there's a lot of people, especially those who start businesses or run businesses or have teams, it's like, at least we built that. I'm gonna justify my existence by what I do in my career. For, for others, especially for young people, it's being cool. It's being in the know. It's like, you justify your existence. You give a reason for your, for your existence by being cool. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's making art or making something beautiful or it's, it's, it's writing some kind of prose. For some people, it's being smart justify your existence by being smart. You think of all the people who ever discounted you in your life or whoever bullied you in your life and you say, well, at least I have this degree. You can't take that from me. You know, even Rocky Balboa, when he was asked, why do you train so hard? Why do you work so hard? To prove I'm not a bum. And here's the simple message of Jesus. Either you come to realize that you need him to justify your life with his love and purpose or you will try to do it on your own. And this is the central theme of the letter to the Roman church. Here's what Paul says in chapter four of Romans. He says, now to the one who works, 
the one who builds, the one who justifies their life. Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, everybody say, trust God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. There are two options in life, and this is why Jesus is either beautiful or ugly. There are two options in life. You can work to justify your life, to be good, to have a reason for your existence, to, look what he's saying in this, to create an obligation for God to approve of you. In a sense, God will owe you. Or you can just receive the free gift. One requires that you humble yourself ultimately, and the other does not. And the reason that Jesus is such an eyesore is because he says to you, no one can do it. No one can justify their existence. No one is enough. No one can give a reason for their life. And the most offensive part of that to the people around us, to maybe even you in this room right now, is that in the grind, because it's a grind, in the grind of self-justifying, in the work and the sweat and the pride of life, deep down we know he's right. Go ahead and try to save your life. Try to justify your existence and watch you die a thousand deaths. The words are haunting. Verse 24 again, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? How does somebody lose their life trying to save it? How, what is the process like? How does somebody lose their life by trying to give a reason for it? Through either pleasure or penance. Pleasure or penance. Either by doing good or accumulating good. See, you could gain and, and you could add all things to your life. Fame, honor, wealth, passion, rare treasure. But in the process, what Jesus is saying, you could lose your soul. And many, many have. We have stories all throughout human history of people who have done just that. Yet God says this in Proverbs chapter 10. He says, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. Let's just read this together. It's a, this is a good proverb. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. There are many who have in an attempt to get pleasure, to become rich, to add heft to their life, to justify their, their existence. They have ruined their lives. They did not wait for God's blessing. They went out and they got their own blessing. And what came with it? Sorrow. They have the home, or they have the cars, they have the status, they have the followers, but they violated others and neglected the values of God to get there, and their lives are full of sorrow, full of stuff that they can't take with them, and full of sorrow. The home is magnificent, but the wife he once loved no longer lives there. Gained the world, and he lost his very self. So for some, they try to, how do they lose themselves in the attempt to save themselves? They try to do what only God can do, and yet a bunch of sorrow comes with it. Or there's penance. 
This one's more common in religious circles. The more religious impulse is this. I will justify my life by being good. I'm going to add heft to my life through moral actions. You know, Freud, he said this is the primary use of religion. I think he was wrong, but here's what he said. He used this example of a young girl who does something bad. Let's imagine that this young girl, she eats ice cream before dinner. Super bad. (laughs) But then she is deliberate in leaving the scene for her parents to discover. She leaves the ice cream, you know, container out, melting on the counter. She has the milk mustache and she doesn't wash it off. Why? Why would she do that? Because then she can grin and bear the punishment so that she can feel justified. She knows that she did wrong. And so she needs a sense of atonement and she'll provide it for herself by allowing the punishment to take place. Freud said, this is how many people treat religion today. You know, religion is this opiate of the masses. It's not real. What people have is they have guilty consciences. It's not a real guilt. It's just made up in their own minds. And so they need religion to punish them for the guilt that they feel. I think there's probably many in this room that this could be even how you treat your own faith. I go to church. I tithe. I sit through those long sermons. You know, I, I serve in the kids. I, 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 I. But why? Why do you do it? Why do you do it? To pay? To be right? To be owed to the one who works? There's an obligation. And while the gospel is proclaimed each Sunday saying, it's finished. Here you are constantly working, working, working to save a life that's already been saved. You know, one of the keys to, to understanding humanity, I, I love um, stories and, and I love, like, I love watching movies, to be honest, and I, I, just to find out, like, what is the condition of humanity? Like, what are the kind of baseline motivations of humanity? What does it mean to be human? And I think good art always brings that out. And here's one of the keys to understanding humanity, and maybe even to understanding yourself. People do not want to change their lives. They want to justify their lives. Nobody wants to change their life. They want to justify their life. So you can either stay in line and you can do good and you can help people and you can know at least I'm a good person. And then God should be, should be obligated to approve of me and to bless me. Or you can break the rules and you can bear the self-inflicted punishment and you can feel justified for paying your due. But do not be mistaken. In either case, this is controlling God. Instead of you dying to yourself and taking up your cross, you're controlling him. You're manipulating God. So here's the question, and it really is an important one because I think we say this in the church so often, and it's like, but what do you mean by that? What does it mean to, in contrast to both of those, to to accumulation of pleasure, accumulation of power, to pain penance, in, in contrast to both of those counterfeits of relationship with God, what does it mean to take up your cross and follow him? What does that actually mean? I don't think that what Jesus is saying is that all disciples are going to be killed on a cross. Because what does he say? He says, you have to take up your cross daily. He's using this as a metaphor. Here's what I think it means. I think that it means you say, I won't live to justify my life. I can't. I won't try to save my life. I'm actually not enough. I'm not enough. I will live to give my life however you see fit, and you will be my only reward. What does it mean to take up your cross daily? I won't live to justify my life. I will live 
to give my life to you however you see fit, and you will be my only reward. What does Jesus say to the man or the woman accumulating heft through power and pleasure? He says, your attempts to project strength show true weakness. All the shiny things you have added to your life show just how dark your internal world actually is. What does Jesus say to the do-gooder or the penance payer? If you only knew what I offered, you could give from fullness instead of lack. You cannot deny yourself and also try to save yourself at the same time. So you got to pick. But if you look at Jesus and you look at him on the cross and you understand that he went there to the cross because of your sin, not just because of other people's sin, you really own it, you personalize it, you say, you're there because of my sin and I deserve that instead of you. But instead of then trying to justify yourself, but I, 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 instead of trying to get even with God, I'll, 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 I'll make it up to you. If you take in the love and you receive the help and you throw your life upon Christ, then you will find your life. That's how you find your life. And his path will become your path. And from your identity to your sexuality, to your career, to your politics, to your time, you will say, if this is who you are, God's Messiah, and I need you, then this is who I am. I'm dependent. I'm in need. And if this is who I am, then I will trust you right here. Your way is best. Your path is life. Your words will make me live. Go ahead and repeat after me. Your way is best. Your path is life. Your words will make me live. Now, here's the linchpin, and this is where it gets, I think, quite interesting. The next verse, verse 27, is, it, to me, has always seemed like a very confusing uh, kind of line, and I've honestly, want, I, it's like one of the only verses I wish wasn't in the Bible, because I have no idea what it, what it means, or didn't have any idea what it meant. It says this in verse 27, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. I always, I'm serious. It's like one of my least favorite verses because it, make, it makes me question Jesus. I'm like, that's not true. All of these men standing there died. When did they see the kingdom come? When did they see the kingdom come? But I had this thought this week and it actually honestly has completely redeemed this passage for me. Could it be that those who trust in Christ do not taste death? Here's what I mean. Could it be that those who lean the weight of their life upon God, who take up their cross daily, who say, I won't justify my life, only you will justify my life, and so I have to trust you, that those who do that are filled with a fearlessness when looking into the face of death? You know, Jesus, he actually says the kingdom is at hand. In other words, it's within reach. Jesus says the kingdom is amongst you. Could it be that those who fail to deny themselves will also fail to get free from the fear of death? Yeah. Always living not to die. Yeah. David Foster Wallace, in his uh, famous commencement speech to a group of college graduates, he said, try to save your life with beauty. 
Try to save your life with youth. Try to save your life with money and you will die a thousand deaths before they put you in the ground. But those who die, who choose it, who take up their cross and they follow Christ, in this life, they see the kingdom. In this life, they become unafraid sons and daughters working in the kingdom for eternity. <laughs> Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Take up your cross, follow me, and you'll live. It all begins with this, who do you say I am? Who is he? Final movement, movement number three, the real identity of Christ. Look down at your Bibles, verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, which I love that, that's so specific. That's how you know that you're reading history. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Does that remind you of Daniel 7 at all? I think it should. Verse 30, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Verse 31, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his, companion, and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter told, said to him, Master, it's good that for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Who is he? This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is my son. You know, once again, there's so much here. We could have a whole message just obviously, or probably a whole series just about this passage and all the different connections throughout the history of Israel that this brings up. But I want to get to the end uh, through application. I want to talk about application of this. You know, they, they, there's this initial question, who am I? Then there's, if you, if, whatever, however you answer, it's going to mean something for your life. And then here's the answer from God. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. One of the problems that I see in our church, honestly, and I just want to call it out, is I see a failure of nerve amongst people who would call themselves Christians. They would say, I'm, I'm a Christian, but their weak need and their conviction. Their conviction about who Jesus is is only as strong as the people around them and what they're saying. I see a lack of personal conviction. This isn't across the board. I see many people who are very convicted, but it's just something I've become aware of recently, and I want to just nip it. I see a lack of personal conviction, a crowd-shaped religion. And maybe you've been there. I have definitely been there. Living without a personal sense of, woe is me, you're God. And, and, and I'm going to listen to you. This is the Son of God. I should listen to him. Is it his voice who shapes his identity in your life, or is it the people around you, the town around you, the industry around you that tells you who he is? I saw this in, in Portland. People would go work at Nike, and I'm going to use names. People would go work at Nike, and you, they'd walk in, and they would be a believer. And after a year, they would be not a believer. They're like a Nike-er. 
they looked, they dressed a certain way. They all wore the same clothes. I guess that maybe it's just the discounts. They all dressed the same way. <laughs> they talked the same way. They started to believe the same things. Their faith began to wane. Now, I, there's some of you who work at Nike, obviously, and I bless you, and I, I believe that you can be a Daniel in the midst of a, a corrupt generation. But I, I, I want to say this. There's another industry, the wine industry here. And there are many that I've watched go into the wine industry. And because they didn't answer the question personally, who is Jesus for themselves, they let their coworkers define who Jesus is. And so then they began to get offended by Jesus. He began to turn into that eyesore. Because they said, you know, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, don't you know that that's offensive to my friend? and what they believe, and what they think, and the way that they live, and their sexuality. Don't you know it's offensive? And it's like, yeah, Jesus knew that. In fact, if they're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of them. That's the truth. We always want to soften it. We always want to soften it. Like, how do I like, we, and you know what? We, in an ungodly way, we call it contextualization. It is not contextualization to take parts of the gospel away in order to become more palatable to the people that you work with or that you know. And I just see that like the glory of God must be stared at and you must make a decision. Who is he? Who are you going to be? Without conviction, I really think that many, and I'm speaking primarily to the young people in this church, I think that you're, you're probably watching this in your friends' lives. Many people are like infants in an ocean. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter four, he says, you know, we need the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers to equip the saints. Why? So that you won't be an infant in an ocean. Think about the imagery. I took, I, I, we went to the beach last Monday and I, I literally, my three-year-old, not even our infant, my three-year-old, I take her and I just, I hold her super tight and I just like dip her feet in the water. Can you imagine an infant just in the wake? <laughs> In the waves, getting tossed here and there. And that's the imagery that Jesus has for people who have not answered this question correctly. If you don't think that he is the, God's Messiah, if you don't think that this is the son of God, you should listen to him. If you answer that any other way, your whole life will be like an infant tossed here and there by whatever the crowd thinks. So there's no conviction. And where there's no conviction, there's no confidence. And where there's no confidence, there's no vision. And you normalize it and you just go, well, I'm young. And aren't we all confused? No. No. No, you don't have to be confused. We perceive incorrectly because we take the crowd's word for it rather than going up the hill. Rather than saying, I'm going to position myself to see the glory of God. I'm going to come to pre-gathering prayer. I'm going to spend time in worship. I'm going to read the scripture throughout my day in the week. We don't get ourselves close enough to see the transfigured Christ. And so we don't get our own take on who he is. We get the crowd's take on who he is. And so here's what I want to say. Jesus reveals his glory to his disciples. Jesus simply reveals his glory to his disciples. And he's going to reveal himself to you. If you simply put yourself in position to see him accurately enough times, it is his glory that will reveal the correct answer. Through opening up the scriptures, the word of God, reproving you, correcting you, teaching you, equipping you, fully equipped for every good work through the, through the glory of God, through his word. It's through times of prayer. 
just getting friends together and saying, hey, I really need to pray. I actually, what Alex was talking about on Sunday, I feel like an infant tossed back and forth and I don't want to be one anymore. Let's ask the glory of God to be revealed. Let's seek God. Let's see what he thinks. It's taking time coming to pre-gathering. We had an amazing pre-gathering prayer today. I really, um, you know, it's, there's a handful of times in my life I've felt God's presence quite like that. It was special. It was really, really special. And in those moments, it was like tr- a transfiguration moment. You know, the other, if, you, if you think about it, the other disciples don't get to see him. It's, it's Peter, James, and John. And don't you know that there are prophets of long ago who long to see what we get to see every day? You have access to the very glory of God. It is his glory that reveals the real Jesus. And it's that resolve. I'm not going to try to build a tent and capture this. I'm not going to try to control this. I'm not going to try and like, you know, use it to do what I want. I'm just going to position myself and just say, woe is me. You are God. You're God's Messiah. You're the son of God. And I'll listen to you. That's the resolve I want in our church. That's the resolve I want in me. Uh, Let's stand. I want to pray for you. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.